Let's, let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter 18 and as we continue our study through the scriptures. And this morning, before we begin, I wanted to share with you um, I, uh, a couple of things happened which were inspiring to me in relation to the text. Um, I was uh, asked to go to Santa Barbara on um, Monday or Tuesday of last week. Tuesday. And uh, I spoke there. They have a 6.30 thing called Believer's Edge. And um, the the folks were so moved that uh, a a group of them came to our Wednesday night event. And two women who were at that event said that the Lord gave them a word uh, that I'm supposed to travel up and down the country um, to to teach this at all the churches. And I thought that he didn't tell me that. Uh, And I'm so glad he spoke to you, but uh, haven't heard that. But it was, they're, they're precious and they really, their heart's desires to see this established. So that was Wednesday night. Wednesday night went very well. Uh, the teaching really touched me. And then I was to speak Thursday night in uh, La Crescenta at a church. And um, I had met this person who had organized it at an event down in Orange County. And I, and I couldn't remember what she looked like. I knew she was African-American, but I wouldn't be able to pick her out of a crowd um, and she's very bubbly. I knew that much of, and she was sending emails and, and Renee, my assistant was working through those. And <clears throat> I was supposed to connect with the attorney that was going to be joining me so that we could figure out how to, and, and I'm, we're like a day away from it. And I'm thinking, this is crazy. I haven't even talked to this guy. What are we doing? And, uh, then they told me his name was Robert Tyler. Well, I know Robert. Uh, he's the one that won the lawsuit for us with uh, little Oak school and he, he is a staunch defender of religious liberty, and uh, he, he fights on behalf of parents up and down the state of California. He's an amazing attorney, and I, I just love what he does, and I just knew right away we'd be able to dance together, and he's kind of like me, just, you know, wing it, uh, put us in front of a crowd, we'll figure it out. And the night, Thursday night, we got together, we had dinner before we went to speak, and it was magical. Um, Robert, I, I call him Bob, Bob started out with some... Uh, uh, news clips of some of the cases he's been involved with in California, uh, protecting children and parents' rights in the school systems. And and the clips were fascinating. I'll, I'll share a few of those with you in a moment. And and when he finished, he said, now I have, I, I defend religious liberty. We're obviously facing a problem in our state and across the country. And Rob has the solution. And so he turns it over to me. And I'm like, <laughs> But as I started to share with him some of the stuff we've been studying on Wednesday nights and talking about what we've done as a congregation and how we've had an impact in our community, and, and I turn over and he's looking at me, staring at me. I go, why are you looking at me in the front of the crowd? And everybody started giggling and he giggled. And then later when we were talking, he said, Rob, God spoke to me that we're supposed to go up and down the state and do this. And I said, do you know these ladies from Santa Barbara? And uh, and so we've been talking about that, that the two of us would travel together and, and maybe do this, uh, not to infringe on our Sunday mornings or anything along those lines, but similar to what we did on a Thursday night. And then Friday, uh, my son uh, was uh, doing the flag ceremony for Oaks Christian School. He goes to Oaks Christian. He's a sophomore, and he the, they had four Boy Scouts do the flag ceremony. It was homecoming. And I hadn't been to an Oaks Christian football game. I'm a Newberry Park fan. And they were playing last night. And I thought, well, okay, I'll go to the football game. And I, I sat in the football game and, and got the chairs, got there early because we had to get Michael there early. And the stands packed out. And, and then I was mesmerized because I've sat through every single Newberry Park uh, game when my son played. And here I am at my very first Oaks Christian game. And uh, they began with prayer. 
And I, I, I just, I, I watched everyone praying, and I thought, well, this is different. And then, and then they did the national anthem, and I was about to take a knee, but I, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and, and everyone was singing and giving glory to the Lord, praying for the opposite team, asking that, that you know, and, and just watching this. And it occurred to me, why is this the exception and not the rule? Well, when did this occur? When did this happen? And, um, and, and I know how difficult it is. And, and, you know, making light with Lou over here and joking around, I know how hard it is for, for him in his position to be a man of faith and to navigate uh, in this world of public education, um, still honoring those in authority, but, but maintaining that spiritual fervor. Um, and, and, and as I looked at that, I thought, wow. And then, I, and then I began to really get in. I'd been reading the passage through the week, but as I started to study it, it, it hit me. And so with that, let's begin with the reading of the word. Let's stand, please. We're going to pick up at verse 1, chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And actually, Mark points out that they're arguing. And, and the word he uses in the Greek for arguing is it is a heated argument. I mean, they're, they're going at it with each other. And Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. So we call, we call the Lord God the Father. Uh, if you're on the wrong side, he's the God Father. Yeah. yeah, how you doing? We're gonna do some cement shoes. You know what I'm saying? Uh, verse seven, woe to the world because of offense for offenses must come, but woe to the man by whom the offenses come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands and two feet or to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven, an insight into guardian angels. My son, Michael has a legion of them. For the son of man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 to go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And then next week it goes into how to deal with somebody that is in in sin. And uh, we'll cover that next week. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we see this picture of Jesus and this little child, as Mark says, sitting on his lap, and he's instructing all of his disciples who are in the midst of a heated argument over who is the greatest. We see this humility established in this child. This child was summoned by the Lord and came and he obeyed. And so here we are today as adults. We've got all kinds of preconceived notions and ideas, and you speak to our heart, and you say, come to me, all you are burdened and heavy laden, 
and I'll give you rest. And we try to come up with every excuse why not to. And yet, Lord, you are patient and long-suffering, wanting that none would perish, but that all would be saved. And Lord, may we never find ourselves in such a place as we hinder others to come to you. So God, bless the study of your word, and I pray peace and comfort upon the fellowship and encouragement to them as they are faithful to labor in the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, have a seat, please. Let me uh, clear my limited space from some of the things I no longer am in need of, such as this here. I I have a couple of fun things, um, and I thought it would make for a better understanding of what we're covering I I copied this off the internet. I heard a story recently about a boy going home with his family after the christening of his little brother in church. And little Johnny sobbed all the way home in the back seat of the car, and his father asked him three times what was wrong. Finally, the boy replied, that preacher said he wanted wanted us brought up in a Christian home, and I want to stay with you guys. (laughs) That's great. I just... This story was told by a woman named Terry who asked her Sunday school class to draw pictures of their favorite Bible stories, and she was puzzled by little Kyle's picture, which showed four people on an airplane. So she asked which story it was meant to represent, and the little boy said, well, it's the flight to Egypt. (laughs) She said, I see, and that must be Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, and Miss Terry said, but who's the fourth person? He says, oh, that's Pontius the pilot. (laughs) Almost finished. This is, my fav- this is my favorite. Well, second favorite. Actually, I've got three of them, so hang in there. A little girl was sitting on her grandfather's lap, and he read her a bedtime story. From time to time, she would take her eyes off the book and reach up and touch the wrinkles on his cheek. She was alternately stroking her own cheek and then, and then, doing, and, and then his again. Finally, she spoke. She said, Grandpa, did God make you? And he said, Yes, sweetheart. God made me a long time ago. Oh, she paused. (laughs) Grandpa, did God make me too? Yes, indeed, honey. He said, God made you just a little while ago. Feeling their respective faces again, she observed, God's getting better at it, isn't he? (laughs) (laughs) This one I, I have from memory. I heard a long time ago about Billy Graham. He was in a small town in Manitoba up in Canada and he was getting ready for one of his crusades, and he got into the town early, and he wanted to mail a letter to his family, but he couldn't find the post office. He stopped a little boy, and he said, where's the post office? And the little boy gave him directions, and he pulls out a card, and he gives it to him. He says, you coming tonight? And the little boy says, to where? And he says, I'm doing a, a, an event tonight. I'm going to show people how to get to heaven. And he says, oh, no. And he says, why not? And he said, well, you don't even know how to get to the post office. <laughs> And then the last one that, uh, that I have from memory is uh, the story of the little boy who was in church on Memorial Day, and he was sitting there, and he was so bored, and he's looking at all the flags for Memorial Day, and he's fidgeting, and he, he keeps tapping his mother, and his mother says, what? And he says, what are the flags for? And she says, those are for people who died in the service. And there's a pause, and he taps her again. He's, he says, in the first service or the second service? <laughs> I know they're fun little stories, but the reality is, you know, I forget the radio host who said, kids say the darndest things. 
But there's no guile. I'm sorry? Art Linkletter, yeah. And, and there's no guile in a child. And, and yet the, the things they say, and, and uh, you know, there are some cultures that are much like children. I think of the Chinese culture. I remember one woman who had a, uh, a burrito place and, a, and, and uh, a dry cleaners. She owned both of them, and it was across the street from the church in San Jose. And I'd go over there for lunch, and I'd drop my laundry off. I got to know her really well, and she, she was so honest. Uh, you know, in America, we'd, we'd, we'd go, oh, you look great, you know. And she'd come, and she'd go, you're gaining weight. And, and it was just this straightforward communication. And I'd look at her going, that's not how we do that in America, <laughs> you, you know. Um, and, and so in this idea, uh, you, you got these disciples, and the book of Mark points out that they're arguing, and it's contentious argument. They're, they're, they're actually arguing with one another as to who's the greatest. And, and in America, we've taken the arguing into kind of manipulation and, and presenting ourselves in a higher light and subtly saying, well, have you heard about so-and-so? Or, and we diminish someone else, and, and we, we try to elevate ourselves, and we do that in subtle ways. And we've taken it to a, a whole new art form. And, a, and, and this is simply what the disciples were doing. They were arguing with one another. And you can imagine as the argument was going along, you know, I'm, I'm the greatest. I'm going to sit at his right hand. And he's saying, no, you aren't. He goes, yes, I am. I was the first one he called. I was doing, I gave up everything. I love my dad. I even brought my brother along. And then the other one says, well, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm the one that he said, you know, you, the, the, that, uh, that you're Peter upon, upon this rock. I'll build my church. He says, yeah, but they also called you, he also called you Satan, you know, and then they're arguing over, well, he took us up on the mountain and the other nine of you stayed below. And he said, yeah, but you wanted to build tabernacles for all three. We heard the story, and, and why couldn't you heal the demon-possessed boy? Well, you couldn't do it either. And, and he goes, yeah, but, <laughs> but he paid my taxes. You know, I mean, you can, they're, they're, you can just imagine the argument. They're just going on and on and on. And finally, the Lord, realizing this, just summons this little child, and he waves to him, and the little boy just comes over without guile, not... And, and I watch this, especially with Nick, and you'll see this when we're there on October 26th. Kids just come to him. You know, there's, there's a little hesitancy simply because they, they want to get affirmation from their parents, and it's the parents that are struggling. But w- when they have that freedom, they just come up to Nick, and they're just, and he's, this smile just, just paralyzes. They're just, you know, and, and there's something sweet about it. And, and this is what Jesus does. He's approachable. And he calls this little child to him and he sets him in the midst of him. And Mark says he puts him on his lap. And, and as he does this, he then takes the opportunities. They're all looking at this little child. It becomes the center of the, uh, or the focal point. And he says, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that, that's a big one. And I want to stop for a minute because one of the things you find in the ministry is, is skepticism. Uh, skepticism because... Uh, the older we get, the wiser we think we are, and the more knowledgeable we become. And and yet, I I, I struggle over that. Um, children get it the minute they're born. Uh, this idea that they've been created. Uh, you, you've heard me say it a thousand times, but I can't think of a better illustration of the of the question that was posed to the graduating seniors at Stanford and the kind- kindergartners. And it was a riddle that said, "What is greater than God? More evil than the devil? The rich need it, the poor have it, and if you eat it, you'll die." And and the Stanford seniors couldn't get it, and all the kindergartners got it because they didn't have to get past the first sentence. What's greater than God? Nothing, nothing, and everything else falls in place with that one word, nothing. What's, what's more evil than the devil? Nothing. What do the rich need? Nothing. What do the poor have? Nothing. What, what is it that you'd eat that you died? Nothing. But they would level this. And I've, I've posed that riddle to, to 
adults and they struggle over it. Well, money? Um, eh. No, it doesn't work in that. Oh, okay. And, and as you walk through all of this, it's that simplicity that nothing is greater than God. And, and, and the wonder of a child being born and saying, what is this all about? And, and they still have this idea. They're, they're fresh off the factory floor. Uh, they, they've, they've, they've seen the manufacturer, and now they come into a world that is denying a manufacturer. Oh, no, no, no. There isn't a creator. We are some cosmic accident, some primordial soup. And they're going, oh, really? Is that right? Yep. And, and there's no such thing as absolutes, and there's no such thing as, as morality, absolute morality. There's, there's no, you know, there's no, none of it. There's no creator, no. And, and will you just pay, you just be patient. We're going to educate you so you'll understand all of this. And they come to a place where they're like, are, wait, are you serious? This is where we are with all of this? This is what you guys believe? Well, if you want to be an adult like us, yes, you're going to have to fall into line. And, and just put your brain aside and just do as we tell you, not what you observe to be correct. And what happens is, the whole point is, the Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. The Bible says to study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed. The Bible commands us that we're, we're to be knowledgeable in these things and to rightly divide the word of truth. And, and if, we're, if we're not, you know, and that's one of the things that we're studying on Wednesday nights, this idea of the laws of nature and nature's God. And, and, and the laws of nature are open to anyone observably regardless of your faith position. You can be an agnostic or an atheist. You can be a Catholic, a Protestant. You can be a Hindu. You can be a, a Muslim. It, it, it's irrelevant. As long as you're seeking truth and you observe the creation, these are natural laws that are observable and you can see them. And in this, you'll realize that there is a designer, that there is there is structure, there is things that we can count on. Mathematical equations, there are absolutes that we follow. We see these things. Now, the only way to bypass those is to, to change the populace understanding and pull them away from being educated to observe. And don't seek truth. Instead, just be patient while we give you the answer. We don't want to teach you how to learn and how to observe. We just want to give you the answer so that you do as we tell you to do. Are you tracking me? Yeah. And so now what we have is there is no God. And, and we, we're, everything, we, we have an issue in America right now where, where you, you have NFL players who don't want to kneel for the, for the national anthem. And this is a major issue. Now, just go a few years back. Do you remember Tim Tebow would kneel in the end zone to pray and, and the attack that he would receive doing that? And, and the hypocrisy of the coach up in Washington, the high school coach, that after the game, he goes into the middle of the field and just kneels down to give God thanks. This is a 20-year Marine veteran, and he kneels to give God thanks, and he loses his job. Where, where, what is this? What, what are we dealing with here? And this is, this is the attempt in, in, in educating culture, and this is attempt to try to influence culture. Now, does the Bible have the ability to influence culture? And, and as Jesus says, these little children are prepared to receive an education. And you guys have gotten to a place where you're arguing over, over a kingdom that, that you know very little about. And as Montague said, bless you, as Montague said, that was the funniest <laughs> sneeze I've ever heard. <laughs> As, as Montague said, no matter how great the throne, you're still sitting on your bottom. 
And, and we come to a place where we think we're elevated. And, and if we're in power, we can control and manipulate. Now, we either operate in such a context as to set men free or to use them as our serfs and our slaves and our subjects. And, and this, this is a philosophical, and by the way, philosophy means love of wisdom. What is the fear of the Lord? It's the beginning of wisdom. And if we remove God from the equation, do we really obtain wisdom? If there is no creator, we have two competing ideologies. One enslaves men. You say, no, 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 no. Religion enslaves men. Really? Let's look at all the, the great governments of the world that have removed God. And how have they done with preserving mankind? Billions are dead. Billions. You see a nation that was conceived that all men are created equal. And that has experienced the greatest growth of any nation on the face of the earth and more freedom for individuals than ever before in the history of the world. And so Jesus says, this little child, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying be ignorant. He says, don't forget the primary importance. You're without guile. Don't forget what is simple to understand. There is a God and you are not him. And he says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humbles himself, humility. The one thing that keeps us from God is pride. And think about that. When I get to heaven, I've got questions for God. That's one of my, that's one of my favorite comments of people. I've got questions for God. And, and, you know, let's just put you into perspective. I mean, here, here the, the, greatest, the greatest nation in the history of the world through, through the world's population represents less than 3% of the world's population in the history of the world. Yet we're responsible for the greatest achievements, the, the greatest accumulation of wealth, the greatest prosperity, the greatest advances right here in the United States of America. Less natural resources in South America. We go on and on and on about it. But it's this idea creating the image of God that even our adults maintain that concept. And as a result, we understand that freedom comes in a relationship. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. And, and with that simple concept... Um, yet what ruins it is pride that somehow I'm better than you. I'm better than you. And that's what they're arguing about. I'm better than you. So what we covered on Wednesday night is the one word that started the American revolution. The one word, consent. The consent of the governed. And King George III had sent a missive after he'd received the Declaration of Independence. He sent it over to the United States on October 31st, uh, 1776. At that time, the war, for all intents and purposes, but it arrived in late November to be handed out to all the colonies and to be read throughout every government structure. The war was over. The, the Continental Army was melting away. They'd lost every battle. Conscriptions were up January 1st. It was finished. And in this, the king of England said, my subjects, my people, my country, my kingdom. And he said, I'm a beneficent uh, uh, king. I have cared for you and, and you are my people. And as they read that, they had been raised with this understanding that they've been creating the image of God, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and, and, and that they've been created equal, not in capacity, but in dignity. What I mean by that is capacity. You look around the room, some are taller, some are shorter, some are faster, some are slower, some are, you know, we all have different capacities. But the idea of dignity, 
that we're created in the image of God and we have been given by God inalienable rights, life, liberty, among those, pursuit of happiness. And as those are laid out, when this letter comes across the, the water, it had the equivalent of what happened. Colin Kaepernick's the first one to kneel. Not a big deal. Some people are upset about it. Then President Trump, you know, late night text, sends something out and, and then says something in, you know, in an Alabama um, senatorial um, debate or election or discussion. And the next thing you know, it's like a baseball bat hitting a hornet's nest. And now you've got a grip of NFL players, and it's all over the news. Well, the king thought that this missive would quell the rebellion and settle it. And it was, for the most intents and purposes, over. This letter came over. It had the exact opposite effect. It, it irritated the colonists. And they said, that's it. That man thinks that I'm his subject? See, the word consent... You can't do anything to me if we're equal without my consent. Do you you understand that? You can't do anything to me if we're equals without my consent. That's why it's of the people, by the people, for the people. That's why it's a constitutional republic, representation, so that we can say, just because you're in authority, it's on loan. We're the ones who put you there. You represent us. This was baffling to the world. It was revolutionary, and that one word consent started the Revolutionary War. No man's going to tell me what I can do. You were born with the same rights I was born with. I am not your subject, and you're not my king unless I give you consent to be such. And your arrogance has, this, has convinced me that no, this will not be the case. And war broke out. And it says, when in the, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people... And what's fascinating about the Declaration of Independence, it wasn't for the American people, it was for the world. One in the course of human events, at any time, it becomes necessary for a people, any people. This this was a declaration of independence from despotism and oligarchy so that we could live fruitful before our God and our King. And what Jesus is describing is, you're accountable to me. And it's not an argument over who's the greatest. You're created equal in the image of God, not by capacity, but by dignity. Equality is not from, from those according to their ability to each according to his need. That's not equality. That's a, that's, that's a destruction of humanity that we all have to dress the same, walk the same, act the same. We've been created in the image of God. There is, look, look, at, look at the universality of God's creation. Just look around the room. And that's the beauty of it. Some have gifts in some areas, some have gifts in other areas. And we have that ability to enjoy this nature. And how does something flourish and realize its fullness of nature? An oak tree, whether a valley oak or a coastal oak, flourishes when you give it water and you give it sunlight and you give it soil and you give it care. A child flourishes when they understand they've been created in the image of God and they, and they have this understanding that they've been fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in their mother, mother's womb. And the, and the fear of the Lord, this reverential respect is the beginning of all wisdom because now you understand the creator, you understand his creation and you start to grow in your knowledge of how all of them interact for the sole purpose that we're being reconciled to a living God. And children grasp that. But we get older and it's our pride. And by the way, all contention, it says in Proverbs, all contention, it says in Proverbs, all contention comes from pride. Every, every fight, I have a right, says who? And the beauty of when God gives us inalienable rights, he also puts it 
If you want to be great in God's kingdom, be a servant of all. He also says, love one another as I have loved you. This isn't an authority that I am in the right and, and, and I am going to put my boot on your neck until you are subjected to what I desire. And, and onward Christian soldier, that's not the picture. The picture is we serve people into the kingdom. We serve people into the kingdom. We consider others better than ourselves. And as we lay this down, this is the picture. And Jesus uses this child as an illustration. And you receive one of these little ones, uh, one of the little child like this in my name, you receive me. You receive, and, and how do you receive a little child? You got to just dial it down a little bit. You dial it down. What's important to that child? How do you relate to that child? And, and when you receive them, they, they're, they're approachable. And there's just something special about that. And then he says in verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone that were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea and woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man to whom the offenses come. You want to indoctrinate these children to turn them away from a knowledge of their creator. That is an awful burden to carry. And for a Jew, they were not a seafaring person, although Solomon did have somewhat of a navy, and they did navigate the, sea, the, 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 the lake of, of Galilee. But they weren't a seafaring people, and, and their capital punishment was stoning, and, and the Romans was crucifixion. But the Phoenicians, who were seafaring people, who they feared, their system of capital punishment was a millstone around the neck dropped into the deepest part of the ocean, 100 feet, 200 feet, 300 feet, 400 feet, 500 feet, going all the way down to where sunlight no longer penetrates darkness. And that is what he's describing. He said, this, 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 this is, you, you want to take these precious children that have just been designed and placed into the world by their creator and remove that understanding and indoctrinate them by your pride to use them as subjects and serfs to further whatever prideful desire you have that mankind would serve you instead of you serving mankind you will be in hell. And for a Jew, the greatest fear was drowning. And they're, they're looking at this little child going, oh, this is so sweet. Oh, gosh. Drowning? Yeah. Yeah. This is serious business. You don't mess with it. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It's better for you, as he goes on to say, to enter into life lame or maimed, rather than having two hands and two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire, speaking of hell itself. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it far from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. He's not taught. Listen, if that's the way we're going to deal with sin, every person in the room would be handless, footless, and blind. This is hyperbole. He's saying the hand is the receptor, you know, physically, the eye is, is the end gate to the soul. Protect them both. Guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Realize that the hand is extended from what the heart is desiring. That hand is extended for the purpose of God. The eye is open to the things that would fill the soul with an understanding of the Lord. As you study to show yourself approved unto God, that you understand who you are in the image of the Lord. He's using this as, a, as, as a, a very clear illustration. Yes, there's a reverential fear. Yes, you know, there is a hell. And the only way you get to hell is you step over the cross of Christ to get there. 
God would want that none would perish, but that all would be saved. He's patient and long-suffering, wanting that none would perish, but that all would be saved. He has no desire that mankind would go there. We choose to go there by our pride and our insolence. I have questions for you, and if that's the way you're going to run the universe, to hell with you. And God says, no, that's your location, not mine. There's only one God. And, and listen, when you sleep at night, he's the one who's keeping the universe moving. He's the one keeping your heart beating and your lungs operating. And when you say you have questions for him, just let's put that into perspective in the span of the universe that the Bible says God holds in the, in the span of his hand from his middle finger to his thumb. He holds the, the universe in the span of his hand. Okay, now we, we look at the night side, you see the Milky Way galaxy. That's one of gazillion galaxies. Yes? And, and he holds all of that right here. And he just comes down to the Milky Way galaxy. And then he comes down there to our solar system. And then he comes down there to the earth. And then he comes to the earth and he goes out to North America. And then North America, he goes over to California. Then California goes to Ventura County. And then he goes right there to the city of Thousand Oaks. And then the city of Thousand Oaks is a Newberry Park and subdivision of Thousand Oaks. And then he goes over there to the little church, Calvary Chapel. And then third row in the second seat the third row there's these guy got questions for you god i got questions for you you're a gnat on the butt of an elephant that's god and yet as majestic and mighty as he is he has a love for you every hair on your head he has numbered every tear you've ever cried, he has it in a bottle. I mean, he, he loves you with an everlasting love. He knows your burden heavy laden. He loves you so much you've been created in his image. He's given you a gift that nothing in all of his creation has, and that's the ability to love. Love is a choice. Choose this day whom you'll serve. He doesn't want you to have to serve him out of obligation, but out of adoration, to realize that he's a good father. It's like my dad. I honor him. It's like my mother. I honor her. They've passed, but I honor them. I love them. They've never been perfect, but if I've learned to submit to imperfect parents, I have no problem serving a perfect God. But one thing I have to understand is as a little child, I didn't have all the answers. My parents did. There was never a time when I'd open the refrigerator and go, is there going to be enough food? I never had a problem turning on the light switch wondering, I didn't pay the electric bill. I didn't even know what an electric bill was. They slapped my hand when I went to put a fork in the light socket. I didn't understand why they would hit me. I came to realize later that was a good thing. Thank you for that. I'd be dead now. You'd CPR, mouth to mouth. I did, you know, right? And as we grow in our understanding, we trust him. We start to understand more of his creation and the laws of nature. We start to realize what amazing God he is. And so Jesus is saying, don't let these things hinder you. And the only thing that hinders you is you think you can run it better than the Lord can. You think you can run it better than the Lord can. My daughter last night as I was sitting with her, and Molly's gone through a number of miscarriages, and they were devastating. And I, Micah is one of these guys that is so steadfast, and there's no emotion in him. But I, I, I noticed this was taking a toll on him. He's this kind of guy that you can't tell if he likes you or dislikes you because he's always so pleasant, and he serves. He's, he's like the Lord in that sense, that as they're sitting at the table and, and Jesus says, one of you betray me, no one knew it was Judas because Jesus didn't treat him any differently than he treated the other guys. That's how Micah is. He's just steady. And this, when one of these miscarriages happened, and each one was taking its toll on them, they were devastated. And I could see it. 
And, and Molly went back and forth, and she shared with me last night, and I was so deeply touched. She was reading a book by Elizabeth Elliot. Now, Elizabeth Elliot's husband, Jim Elliot, had been killed by the Maka Indians, in, or the Aka Indians, excuse me, in South America. And she actually went back after the massacre of these five missionaries, one being her husband. She went back later with her children and went back into this Indian group in the Amazon, led them to the Lord, and changed the entire course of that, of that entire tribe. And you're like, woman, what is wrong with you? I was thinking, let's bring in the National Guard and, and set them right for this murder. And they speared him to death, left him to die. Many of the, you know, they, they, their bodies floated down the river. And she wrote this. She said, God is God. Now, that's the thing a child can say. God is God. God is God. I dethrone him in my heart if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. It is the same spirit that taunted, if thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. There is unbelief, there is even rebellion in the attitude that says, God has no right to do this to five men, my husband, unless... And she said, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Did you hear that? The secret is Christ in me, not me in a set of different circumstances. Nothing happens that doesn't first pass through the sovereign hand of God. Through the result of what happened with, with, with Jim Elliott and, and, and through this, you know, the gates of splendor, that man had a welcoming home that was unbelievable. Started one of the greatest missionary movements in the history of the Western world. And here you see Elizabeth Elliott coming to terms by simply saying, um, I, I can be angry at God for the set of circumstances as though that was unjust. But what I do know of me is just, and I don't know the beginning from the end, and I don't know how electricity works when I hit the light switch as a child. I'm grateful it works. But you go deeper with the Lord the more you trust him. And this woman walked with God the entirety of her life. Precious, precious woman. The secret is Christ in me. That's the hope of glory. It's not you in a set of different circumstances. I don't like what happened to me. God, why? That's not just. That's not fair. Now, children start to learn that at an early age. That's not fair. Where do they learn it from? The arguing of their parents. And so the Lord points out and he says, no, we have to maintain this heart of a child. And then verse 10, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. For the son of man has come to save that which was lost. You know, you've gotten on a rabbit trail in life. Somewhere along the line, it was simple. And then life became complex. And in the complexity of it, you have bought a bill of goods thinking there is no God, and you have been living your life trying to prove his non-existence, which is a crack up to me. Why do you have to prove someone who doesn't, it doesn't exist? Why do you have to prove they don't exist? I don't spend any time trying to disprove the existence of Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. It's laughable. And you're raging. And, and one of my favorites is when I have an atheist or someone who denies the existence of God calling me evil. And I go, whoa, time out. Where did you get that idea? That is a metaphysical term. If there's evil, then there's naturally good. Can, and, and if you're just dealing with a materialistic world and you're saying we're just a cosmic accident, there can't be any metaphysical good or evil. And to call me evil, you're using my terms to defend your position. You've got to be a little smarter than that. And, and I asked them, you know, and this is on a college campus where 
we have removed, in a sense, the existence of God. And you ask students, and this is one of my favorites, you ask students, was the Holocaust wrong? And one of my favorites is, is rape wrong? And they go, well, no, no, no. Definitively, is rape wrong? Because if the idea is the survival of the fittest, and we're just a primordial soup and a cosmic accident, and we're here by chance, wouldn't it seem logical to have your species continue? Is rape wrong? They can't answer that definitively because there's no morality. There's no absolutes. The Holocaust, and the minute they say anything is evil, you you own them because that means that there's also a good. And by what standard do you declare this to be such? And this is the conundrum. Tell them we'll call back. This is the conundrum that we have in in our culture. And yet, we continue to put it out there with all of our children. And we look out at a school where everyone's praying before a game. And you go, why is that the exception? When did that happen? In a nation that declares we've been created in the image of God. And I remember in the assembly debate when they said, do you believe that creation should be taught in schools? And you had all the SEIU that had been busted in from Sacramento and they were all going, yeah, answer the question. And, and I think it was Kyle Jory, the editor of the Acorn. I said, it's already being taught in schools. Can you explain? I said, yes. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And he smiled. I go, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights? I mean, if civics is being taught, creation's being taught. We've been created in the image of God. Do you want to take that away? That's our Declaration of Independence, the United States of America. Do you want to remove that? Or are you speaking of the scientific aspect? No, that's not being taught. But if we just simply taught this idea, then we'd want to know what that means. And we'd attach that to the rest of the ologies as we study. But there's no way to indoctrinate you and, and, and to have authority over you through pride if you believe yourself to be equal with me. I'm the intellectual elite. I will rule you and tell you what's good for you. I'll tell you whether your children should be vaccinated. I will tell you, I will make the rules and you will do as I say. Do you see the... Take heed that you don't despise one of these little ones. I say to you that in heaven their angels see their face, the Father in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save and seek and save that which is lost. And then it says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that the sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Oh, and by the way, we're all his children. And some of us have strayed. And he has a love for mankind. For God so loved the world. He has a love for mankind. And where we struggle as a church, and as his children who are right with him, is that our pride gets in the way of loving the lost. How dare they do that? Those good-for-nothing, left-leaning, liberal just add the adjectives and you're doing nothing to further the kingdom of God. Nothing. Engage in their lives, be with them at the critical moments and speak the truth in love. And when does a servant speak when spoken to? When do they offer their opinion when asked? 
That means you engage in their culture. That means you step into the thick of it. Oh, it's, 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 it's far too gone. There's no hope for America. Thank God that you weren't one of the first 12 apostles because the world was upside down. There wasn't a single Christian radio station. There wasn't a single school that was praying before a football game. And, and, and more than a third of all of Rome was slaves. Thank God that, that you weren't there because your, your eschatology and your theology has given up and you might as well let everyone just slide into the abyss. And when one person on Thursday night starts saying, well, there's, what, what are we supposed to do? Where do we even begin? And I stopped them. And I said, the last time I checked, the Bible says we're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. No weapon fashioned against you will stand. The greatest weapon you possess is your love for the lost, that you'd leave the 99 to go after the one. But if you want to sit back in your bunker, in your enclave, and decry the, the decline of Western culture, you've had no part in its, in its upkeep and development. You've sat idly back while these children have been just led to the slaughter. And I turned to that person. I said, who are your school board members? He didn't know. What are they dealing with in their culture? He didn't know. Nothing. There was silence in relation to that. And the Lord says, leave the 99 for the one. Go into that world. He's lost in the mountains of confusion. Go find him. That's a lot of work, isn't it? Almost finished. Take a look at this, if you would. This is uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush. He was the very first kind of public school um, organizer. We profess to be Republicans. He's not meaning the party. He means constitutional republic, those who believe in a representative form of government, not an oligarchy. You understand that? We profess to be Republicans, and yet we neglect the only means of establishing and perpetuating our Republican forms of government, that is, the universal education of our youth and the principles of Christianity by the means of the Bible. Now, you read that, and, and immediately I can tell you, you've been in doctrine, and go, hmm, that's a little militant. For this divine book, above all others, favors that equality among mankind, that respect for just laws, and those sober and frugal virtues which constitute the soul of republicanism. The only foundation for useful education in a republic is to be laid in religion. Without this, there can be no virtue. Without virtue, there can be no liberty. And liberty is the object and uh, object in life of all republican governments. It was misprint there. The idea is, how do they know that there's virtue? How do they know that they have inalienable rights? How do children know these things unless we teach them? And who's teaching them? You step into a public school system as a Christian, first of all, the church looks at you like, well, we're going to educate our own, and that system's finished. Again, thank God you weren't around at the foundation of the church. I look at folks like Lou jumping into the thick of it. And he has to navigate those waters and, and seek not to offend. But woe to him from whom offense does come. But he's not out there seeking to offend. But he is holding the line. I, I used that earlier on the highest throne in the world. We still sit only on our bottom. And then this is Jesus. I love this picture off the internet. This is a picture of what we just studied. 
Here's an older view of it. This is, if you would look at me first, and I'll read it to you in a moment. Just, I know you're already captivated by it, but I've already lost you. Come back to me. Come back. Come back. Come back. Over there. He's not listening. He's, he's totally ingratiated. Okay. Um, this is what is called the Old Satan Deluder Act. It was the very first public school um, uh, act established in, 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 uh, in America. And it was in 1642. And um, they had come over from, uh, from, from Europe. And when they came over from Europe, they carried with them what was called the Geneva Bible, which had, it was the same Bible as the King James Version. You've heard the story. And the King James Version has the same scriptures as the Geneva Bible, but the Geneva Bible had commentary in the margins on civil government. And it started the Reformation. It was the Bible of the Reformation. John Calvin, John Knox, all these guys studied out of this. And they created this form of government where man has created the image of God. And they were challenging the, the divine right of kings and the authority of an oligarchy that would declare that you're born a king and you're born a peasant. And this, this angered. And, and as they started to apply these scriptures to establish this freedom and a government where mankind would flourish according to the scriptures, they brought this over with them. The Mayflower Compact was inspired by the writings in the Geneva Bible. Read the Mayflower Compact for the propagation of the Christian religion. Yeah, very first, yeah, fascinating. And, and as they came over, they opened this. You can see in the rotunda in the capital, they're opening the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was outlined in the realm of the king. He came out with the King James Bible saying that no English print of a Bible could be printed without the king's authority. So he gave them the King James Bible to shut down the Geneva Bible, which was outlawed. They didn't want people to know they've been created the image of God and they have consent of the governed and equality by dignity. And they, they realized the, the only way we can subject them to maintain them as our subjects is to keep them illiterate. The minute they get into this Bible and they understand it, we're in trouble. We've got to stop this reformation. And so they wanted to keep the masses illiterate. And that's why the Bible says, study to show yourself. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. And so they realized, these, these Puritans, these separatists, they realized the only way that we're going to keep our children free is that they have to be literate. And not just literate, but literate in the scriptures because they'll know the truth and the truth will set them free and they'll realize who they are in God. And so they came up with the very first public school act called the Old Satan Deluder Act and they taught them from a scripture called the New England Primer, which was still popular even into the 1930s, but was the number one textbook in America up until the 1930s. It says, this is, this is the Old Satan Deluder Act. This is the public school act that was established by the Puritans and separatists, it being one chief project of that old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the scriptures as in former times by keeping them in an unknown tongue. So in these latter times, by persuading from the use of tongues that so that at least the true sense and meaning of the original might be clouded and corrupted with false glosses of saint seeming deceivers and to the end that learning may not be buried in the grave of our forefathers in church and commonwealth, the Lord assisting our endeavors is therefore ordered that every township in this jurisdiction after the Lord hath increased them to 50 households and shall forthwith appoint one within their own town to teach all such children as a resort to him to write and read whose wages shall be paid either by the parents or masters of such children or by the inhabitants in general by way of supplies. A major part of that order prudentials the town shall appoint provided that they send the children to be oppressed by paying much more. It goes on and on to declare these things. 
further order than town shall increase in number. And they all want to send them to fitted for the university, instruct them as well. And this is what they realized, that if our children are to, to be educated, they need to know how to read and how to learn and how to be committed to the Lord. Now, uh, we can turn it off now. You can pull that up. The old Satan Deluder Act, 1642-1647. Why? It was the number one thing they could do to keep the children safe, was to have them educated. And we don't even read the Bible in our families, let alone in our culture, in our community. Not, I'm not speaking of our fellowship. I'm talking about in general across the country. Where do these understandings of liberty and truth come from? And what Jesus is saying is if a culture is to be touched, the first thing is we have to come to him as a little child. God is God, just like Elizabeth Elliot wrote. God is God. And he loves us so much that he would leave the 99 to come after the one. And he doesn't want any of, of us to perish. And he looks at you and he says, I love you with an everlasting love. I left the glory of heaven's throne for the humiliation of an earthly cross to pay the penalty for your separation from God the Father with my blood that is without sin to be reconciled, to be reconnected with your creator that you may enjoy life and life more abundant. And the only thing that keeps you from this gift is one thing, pride. I got questions for you, God. Who are you? How dare you? Be careful. The two great laws of the universe, there is a God and you are not him. And the great gift of God is he gave his son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He loved you this much. He wants to reconcile today. You can go on your vaunted journey for the remaining years you have on this globe that is held by nothing in the expanse of the universe, shaking your fist and declaring he doesn't exist while your heart keeps beating and your, your lungs are moving and you're resting and you control none of it but you decry his existence because of pride. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. He summoned you. Come to me. All you who are burdened and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come to me. And that little child didn't hesitate. He came to him like the kids come to Nick with wonderment and amazement and joy. And like a little child sat right on his lap. And Jesus said, this is who enters the kingdom. There's no pride. They say what they mean and they mean what they say. And they're humble and they're sweet. And they recognize that mommy and daddy take care of it. And your father in heaven has always cared for you and it's time to be reconciled to him. Come home, come home. He's summoning you. And like that little child, you come. And the Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue, that Jesus is Lord, that he's God, you're saved. There's no millstone. You are now part of the reinfusion of life on this earth. You're not one of the apathetic. You're not one of the complacent. You are now part of a kingdom that brings life 
and leaves 99 to go find one and you are infused with love because he loved you so much. This is what he did for you. And as God has loved you, so love one another. What a great gift. And it's available to all who would come this day, recognizing that Jesus is Lord. His body was broken. That's the bread. His blood was shed for the remission of our sins. Blood must be shed for the remission of sins. He paid the penalty. It's all taken care of. And you do this in remembrance of him. This is an act of faith. You take the bread first, the cup second, because the body had to be broken before the blood could be shed. And I've said before, if you screw the order up, you're still going to heaven. But it's, it's to remember. It's to remember. And as you hold these elements in your hand as we're about to take communion, thank him. Because he left the 99 to come find you. He loves you. And it's time to love one another. And may God bless you in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Let's have the worship team come on up. And let me, uh, let me pray for us. Lord, as we prepare to take communion, we come to worship you and to honor you and to do this in remembrance of you. For greater love is no man than this than to lay down his life for a friend. And Lord, you came in the midst of our sin to set us free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And Lord, you've come that we might have life and life more abundant, but the one thing that hinders us is pride. But if we've been created in the image of God and equality, why would we have pride? We're not better than anyone else. We humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and he lifts us up. He wants us to enjoy life and life more abundant. And so God, please humble our hearts that we would receive this eternal gift. I pray you'd move through the hearts and minds of all who are present, that this would be a time of communion they would never forget. And so Spirit of living God, fall afresh on us and bless us now as we take communion in remembrance of you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.